you haven't already done so, let me encourage you to find 1 Peter 3 in your Bibles, and we're going to continue the study we've been doing there. Uh, I'm going to ask Jackie Jackson if you would join me down front. And Dustin Clegg, I spotted you. I know you read Scripture, but I'm going to use you for something else. Eddie Raper, would you come over here, please? I chose these guys for a reason, and uh, I knew they would play hard. And uh, thank you guys for coming and helping me. I got a question I want to pose to each, each fellow. This is not premeditated. They had no idea I was going to ask them a question. No? And uh, I don't know why I'm holding this. I don't need it. I'll let you hold that. Okay. When, when I have a question to ask you, Jackie. Okay. Here's my question. If you knew after lunch you could have any dessert that you could pick, what would you choose? Any dessert. Any dessert. Banana pudding. Banana pudding. How many of y'all agree with that choice? That's a good choice. Why, why, you almost got applause. Why banana pudding? Because I like it. Because you like it. Okay. Thank you, Jackie. All right. Just, hey, 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 just, just wait. Oh, that's okay. We'll let him go. No, 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 no. no. Let's do Eddie. I'm going to save the best for last here. Uh, Eddie? If, uh, if you could take a vacation anywhere in the world, now don't look at your wife. I have to ask her. No, 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 no. If you could take a vacation anywhere in the world, where would you want to go? Europe. Europe. All right. Is that a good choice? Y'all like All right. Why Europe? There's a lot of history there, and uh, I've always wanted to, to go to uh, Normandy Beach. Very cool. That's interesting. All right. I'll let you hand the mic off. You all can go ahead and applaud for Eddie. We'll let him go, too. All right. Okay, Dustin, uh, I have not said, you know, asked you this question before, but if you could have any superpower <laughs> whatsoever, what superpower do you wish you had? would be great flying okay he would like to be able to fly would that be cool to be able to fly all right why would you like to fly I'm scared of flying to be honest with you I really, <laughs> I really don't know um, that way I wouldn't have you to would get on a plane. you like to fly so you wouldn't have to fly on airplanes okay that's good thank you very much very good you know when I asked each of these guys about something they would like, something they would want. Uh, they knew what it was. They had an answer. And they were able to tell me why. All, all, most of them were able to tell me why pretty easily, why they would want to do that. In the very middle of chapter 3, the Apostle Peter says something very similar. We're in a study of First Peter, and we've called the, the series, God's Got This. And we're studying this book because Peter was written, 1 Peter was written, for that person who is experiencing suffering, pain, hardship, persecution, trouble in any form, and it is God's word for you. And so if that's where you are this morning, uh, this book is for you, 1 Peter. And if you're not experiencing that, you know someone who is, and promise me over the course of your life, you will experience this 
And so in, in, um, we're calling this this morning, this particular message, Why Hope? Why Hope? And, um, and each of those individuals had a reason for what they wanted. Look at the very middle, chapter 3, verse 15, and even the middle of that verse, Peter says, always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Hope. Hope in the New Testament, and as Peter uses it, is an expectation that when this life ends, I will be with Jesus. That's biblical hope. The expectation and the desire to be with him when my life is over. If I don't have that hope, I am unprepared to live the life of a Christian as it's described in 1 Peter. Because when suffering comes, when trouble comes, everything he says is based on that hope, on that expectation that this life is not all there is and that there is much, much more to come. I am not a fan of flying like Dustin. And, and uh, I think I've shared before that uh, I struggled with this about 25 years ago. Even though I grew up in the Air Force, I struggled with anxiety about flying. And, um, and some great stories I could tell you about the journey of overcoming that. But I'm still not a fan of flying. I go where I need to go, but I'm not a fan. And uh, for a lot of reasons. Now, let's say, though, that you and I are on an airplane. Not you and I. Uh, you're on an airplane, and somebody next to you you don't know, and, and not a Christian. And you're on that airplane, and you're flying along. All of a sudden, there's a big bump. And the pilot comes on, and the plane has begun to go down. Now, that's what happens when planes quit flying. In fact, in all the history of aviation, every plane that's gone up, none has failed to come back down. And so it's going down, and as it's going down, the pilot comes on and says, we're experiencing engine trouble. Uh, Please return to your seats and uh, take a safe position, put on your seatbelts and all that kind of stuff. And you're watching the way stewardesses, and they're not looking too happy about this. You look out the window, there's flames coming out of the engine, and you suspect that there's a problem. And this may be the end of your life. And while you're sitting there, you're a Christian who has given thought to the issue of hope. And and although there's natural anxiety over the imminent approach of death, every human being is, is not trained to embrace death. And even though there's a natural anxiety about that, in your heart, you realize this is not the end for me. I put my trust in Jesus, and your heart begins to focus on Christ. And even though you may not look very calm in your mind, you may not feel like you're at peace, your heart is going to the right place, and you are settling your confidence, your future, your hope on Christ. The person next to you is coming unglued. They're panicking. They're scared to death. And they look over at you, and you're just sitting there with your eyes closed, and you're thinking, I'm going to rest in Jesus. And the person next to you eventually grabs hold of you, grabs hold of your arm, grabs it hard and says, how can you do that? Are you crazy? We're about to die here. Why aren't you scared? Why aren't you upset? 
And you thought, well, I guess I'm not like that person. I have hope. Do you have hope like that? Do you have hope that when the moment comes, that will sustain you through that moment, that will carry you through that crisis? That's what Peter's talking about today, and he wants you and I to be able to answer that question when they grab your arm and they say, how can you be so calm? He wants us to be able to answer and give a reason for our hope. What I fear is too many of us as Christians have had it so easy, and we, we have not thought about, and we have not given attention to the fact that my life will end. And I need to really give some thought to what's going to happen after that. And am I ready? Why do I hope? In this section of 1 Peter, he wants to strengthen you and me. Prepare us for that moment of suffering, hardship, persecution, threat when it comes. Why do I have hope? There are four reasons that I want you to see that Peter gives you and me. Here's the first one. Reason number one, I am blessed no matter what happens to me. I am blessed no matter what happens to me. Look at verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Who will harm you? When I first read that, as I began studying this week, I, I thought right away that that was kind of an odd question. He's been writing all through the book about people who are going to harm you. And he says, who will harm you? Almost as if it's something that doesn't happen very often. That in the world, in Christian history, that persecution is rare. Well, we know that's not true. In Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus said to go and make disciples. Go in all the world, make disciples of all nations. Of all the nations, go and make disciples. And the Greek there, the Greek words there for all the nations is panta, which means all the nations, ta ethne. Panta ta ethne, all the nations, go and make disciples, Matthew 28. That's our mission. A few chapters earlier in Matthew 24, verse 9, Jesus said, they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all the nations for my name's sake. We don't think about that when we think about missions, do we? He says, make disciples of all the nations. He says, by the way, all the nations are going to hate you. The same group that you're trying to reach is the same group that's going to hate you, despise you, persecute you. Stephen Neal wrote uh, a text that's been used in seminaries, History of Christian Missions. And in the course of it, he's trying to describe why the church grew so rapidly in the first three centuries under such persecution and hardship. Here's what he says. Every Christian knew that sooner or later, he might have to testify to his faith at the cost of his life. And every Christian knew that in the first three centuries. That sharing my faith, something as simple as sharing my faith in Christ, was a life-threatening activity. That someone could take my life by simply sharing my faith. Who will harm you? Peter, come on. A lot of people are lining up to harm us if we follow Christ. 
Now, so much of the time when we look at a verse isolated out of its context, it's going to be really hard to understand the statement. But if we go to the very end of verse 12, which is the statement just before verse 13, who's going to harm you? Listen to what he says. End of verse 12. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So who will harm you? You understand what he's saying? Ultimately, no one can harm you. If the Lord's face is against those who do evil, ultimately no one can harm you. Oh yeah, they can destroy your flesh. Yes, they can take your life. But they're not going to harm you. (laughs) You are safe. And that's why that eternal perspective is what we have to have when we face suffering. Then he says in verse 14, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And I'm stumped again. You know, I hadn't got very far in this text. I'm supposed to preach and teach, and suddenly I'm, I'm stumped not once but twice. Blessed? How am I blessed when I'm in trouble? Peter got this idea of blessing when we're in trouble from Jesus. He got most of his ideas from Jesus. Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 11, Jesus said, blessed are you. When they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. And based on this blessing, react this way. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Why? For great is your reward in heaven. I am blessed, not because I have some kind of sick fascination with pain. Oh, yeah, hurt me again. I mean, I'm not blessed because of that. I'm blessed because I, am, I have this privileged status in heaven. I have a reward waiting for me. I have the favor of God on my life. And because of that, I can have hope. Corey Tin Boom, her story, The Hiding Place, has been told and filmed. And uh, if you've never, if you're not familiar with her story, I encourage you to pick it up, read it, or watch the film. Story of how they protected Jews from Nazi extermination during World War II. Ultimately, they were exposed and they were arrested. And the whole family was arrested. The father, Papa Ten Boom, very old man, godly man, three of his daughters, his son, and his grandson, all of them arrested. They were in a holding cell the first night they were arrested. And ultimately, they were separated. Most of them would never see each other again and would not survive. Peter, the grandson, was the last one to see Papa Ten Boom. As he was being led away to his cell, he stopped where his grandfather was sitting, and he leaned over and he kissed him. And Papa Ten Boom looked up at his grandson, Peter, and he said this, My boy, are we not a privileged generation? Last words he ever spoke to his grandson or to any member of his family privileged not because I'm suffering not because I'm being persecuted but because the favor of God rests on his people well this makes sense when I widen the scope of this verse that says that I am blessed uh, I go back into the chapter verse 8 and uh, this won't be on the screen but just listen or you can follow along in your Bible chapter 3 verse 8 listen to Listen to what he says, and this is going to help us. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tenderhearted. 
Be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. So what is the blessing? He quotes Psalm 34, and he's going to tell you the blessing. He who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. This is what Peter's saying. He says when someone attacks you, someone persecutes you, someone abuses you, don't, don't return to them what they're giving to you. Don't, don't revile them and be ugly to them when they're ugly to you. Now here's the blessing, and this is also why we shouldn't act that way. In verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil why am I blessed when trouble comes because the eyes of the Lord are on me the ears of the Lord are open to my prayer and his face is turned against my enemies I am blessed and so are you, if you know Christ. And so that means that when trouble comes, and listen, we're talking about extreme forms of persecution, I understand that, but you know, trouble could be your car breaking down on your way to, to minister to somebody. Your water heater going out, if you're a Sunday school teacher, you're trying to study a lesson, your water heater goes out. Um, you're, you're trying to do something for God, and there's some kind of interruption, you're on a mission trip, and everything goes wrong. And we can be so tempted in that moment to say, I'm not feeling very blessed here, God. Why are you letting this happen? And yet the word says you are blessed when that happens. Why? Because I am privileged, I am favored, and God is doing something good in the midst of that. So I should watch for that. I should thank him for that. God, thank you that I am privileged. Thank you for your favor. Why do I have hope? The first reason is because I'm blessed. There's a second reason. Reason number two, I've given control of my life to Jesus. In verse 14, he says, instead of being troubled and afraid, in verse 15, he says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. We can say it with our lips all day long, but this is where it needs to happen. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. All of your words and actions, where do they come from? Your heart. And what he says is when suffering comes, when trouble comes into your life, the very first thing you need to do, and you need to do it in a decisive way, the way this is worded, he says, step back and in your heart, make him Lord. This is not my problem, Lord. This is your problem. It's not my life to live, to survive, or to be taken or given up. It's your life, Lord. Take my life. This is not my issue. These are not my needs. These are not my problems. And you're not talking yourself into some kind of denial. You are surrendering yourself fully to Christ as Lord. And saying, Lord, you've got this. Sanctify him. Set him apart. Recognize him. He is the Lord. He is in control. This is what they did in the New Testament. Jesus led the disciples everywhere they went when he was on earth. When he left, what did he do? He sent his Holy Spirit into their hearts to be for them all they 
that he would be if he were there in person. And so the book of Acts is a story of Jesus Christ continuing to lead his disciples everywhere that they went. And, and he led them into witnessing encounters. He led them into times where they were persecuted. I think of Paul and Silas in Acts 16. They go and they encounter a demonized girl who is making money for some people. And they cast the demon out. They get mad. They strip them. They beat them. They throw them into prison. And at midnight, what are these guys doing? They are singing and worshiping God. Now, how is that possible? They sanctified the Lord God in their heart. They said, God... We don't know why we've been beaten and stripped. We don't know why we're hurting, why we're in pain at this moment. Lord, we don't know what you're trying to do, what you're trying to accomplish, but we know this. We are blessed. We are favored. We are your people. We are your sons and your daughters, and we're going to praise you. And you know what happened. You know the rest of the story. There was an earthquake, and the jailer, the very man who was keeping them in prison, was saved, and his whole family came to know Christ. So you and I tend to focus on the pain, the suffering, the hardship. And Peter knows that, and he says, look, here's what you've got to do. You've got to step back and surrender control of your life to God. Lord, whatever is happening, I don't understand it. Whatever is happening, I give it to you. I know that you are Lord, and I'm giving you control of my life. Third thing, that we have hope. Third reason we have hope. I am blessed. I have yielded control of everything to Jesus in my heart. Reason number three His mission is to bring me to God, and Jesus never fails. This passage that we're going to read is probably one of the most difficult ones in the book of 1 Peter, if not the New Testament. There's some strange things in here. I'm so glad that we have 242 groups that are going to meet this week, and all those group leaders are going to answer the questions people have about these tough passages. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. Two questions we need to address. And I'm just going to do this briefly. And this is not the main point. So you can tune me out if you want. But who did Jesus preach to? Who did Jesus make this announcement of victory to? There are four theories. Some people say that the description is of people who heard Noah's warnings as he built the ark. They heard his preaching. You know, Noah was telling people, he was warning people that a flood was coming, something was going to happen, and they didn't listen to him. So what Jesus did was he went through the Holy Spirit, spoke through Noah while Noah was still alive and while all the people were still alive. Augustine in the third century and others came up with that idea. Second view, that Jesus preached to the people who died in the flood, that somehow this group of people before the flood more than anybody else, had no chance to hear the gospel, hear the good news, and so he went and essentially gave them a second chance. I definitely don't agree with that view because nothing in 1 Peter suggests that you and I have a second chance. In fact, just the contrary. He's saying, watch out, judgment's coming, be ready, make sure you're on the right side. Third view, who did Jesus preach to? That he preached to the people who trusted God in the Old Testament. These were the people saved in the Old Testament by faith in God and his ability to save. 
and that Jesus went. Somehow they were confined until the proper time, and that through his resurrection he went and opened up hell, raided hell, harrowed hell, and set all those people free. Some people believe that. The fourth view is that Jesus preached to angels, not people, who corrupted humanity before the flood. Genesis 6, verses 1 to 4, talks about the sons of God. And it's a euphemism, typically, for angelic beings who came among men, had sexual relationships with women, and produced a race that was exceptionally evil and wicked. And Jude, verse 6, there are no chapters in the book of Jude. Jude, verse 6, said that there were angels, in fact, who left their proper abode, their assignment, what God had made them for, that angels left their proper abode and they would be held in chains, reserved in chains until the end. So there's some substance to that. The word spirits used here is almost never used of human beings, almost always refers to angels. I'll let your group leaders figure out which one they want to support. Second problem. Pastor, are you really going to do that? Yeah. What, somebody said, are you going to be around this week where I can call you? I said, no, I'm going on vacation. <laughs> Second problem. What is he saying about baptism? Look at verse 21. After he describes the flood and that Noah and, and a total of eight people were rescued out of a world that hated them and hated God, he saved eight people from that situation through the flood. Verse 21 says, there is also an antitype. An antitype is a symbol of something similar to something else. And so he's saying there's something about the flood story that is similar to what happens in baptism. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Now, a lot of people stop right there and they say, baptism saves. It says so right there. And that in order to be saved, you've got to be baptized in water. And... Um, and yet, everything in First Peter and most of the New Testament contradicts that view. Uh, Jesus suffered for our sins. Uh, he is the one who saves us. All the major passages that tell us how to be saved say nothing about baptism. Uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish. doesn't say believe and be baptized. And so there's a, there are groups that believe that, that teach that, but I don't believe that this passage is very helpful to that end. The thief on the cross was never baptized, and yet he put his trust in Jesus as the king. And he said, remember me when you come in your kingdom. So what, what does he say? Well, I think Peter knows that this is an issue. Because right away, he says, which now saves us baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh. It's not what happens in just going under the water. It's something else. He says, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Peter immediately says, no, it's not like a bath that removes dirt, but it's what a person does who is seeking a clean conscience, and they put their faith in Christ, and he has washed their sins away. Baptism is the first step of obedience that new Christians take. It's their profession of faith where we say to the world, as Todd did in that first service, says to the whole world, I have trusted Christ. And my old life is buried and gone and washed away, and I have a new life. So the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, everything I just said, let's put that away for a moment. You need to get the main idea. 
Peter did not want us to get bogged down in that stuff. He was trying to make a point with that stuff. So look at the very last verse of the section, verse 22. Talking about Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. The, the passage, the section that's so odd, ends with a statement that Jesus is victorious. Over death, over the grave, over the threats, over the abuse, over, over the ridicule, and no matter what interpretation you take, it says he went and announced that victory. He announced that victory, and just like he rescued eight people from a world of hate, he is able to rescue a people now for himself, and he is doing that. And everything in creation, every persecutor, every abuser, every demonic angel is now under his authority. And so we have hope. But it's more than that. It's not just about the victory of Jesus. It's also about his mission. Go back to the beginning, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. Why? That he might bring us to God. And he was victorious in that. If everything he did was to please the Father, and if he suffered and he died for our sins to please the Father, and, and his mission was not just to deal with your sin problems. His mission was to bring you to God. What does that tell you about the Father's heart for you? What he wants from you now. Jesus died not so you could come and warm a pew in a church for 40 years. He died so that you could be with the Father and the Father could have fellowship with you. Number four, last reason. Why do I have hope? Here's the last one. His love for me has changed the way I think about my life in this world. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, sin's no longer his master, that he no, no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. If I have a weapon, I'm in my house, I have a weapon, I own a weapon. And somebody comes into my house, and I said, hey, stop, get out of my house, I have a weapon. And they don't stop. And they keep coming. Now, at that point, my weapon that I own will do me no good unless I arm myself. You got that? I have to arm myself. I have to pick it up. I have to arm myself. Here's what Peter's doing. He's saying, look, suffering is coming. Suffering is coming. You must arm yourself with a certain frame of mind or you will not be ready for what's coming. Suffering does not produce better Christians. Sometimes it produces the most warped and disappointed and bitter Christians you've ever seen. Unless we are armed with the right mindset. 
Listen again to verse 1. He says, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind or thought. And what is that thought? Christ suffered for us. If I'm going to experience suffering, the first place I need to go with my mind and the way I arm my mind is that thought. Jesus suffered for Don Pusey. And everything else in the passage will make sense. My source of hope in the midst of suffering is I know Christ suffered for me. I know that I have his favor. I know that I can turn it all over to him and let him be Lord over my my fight, my battle, my struggle, my persecution, my suffering. I can give all of that to him. But when I come to this moment, I realize that he loved for me, his love for me is so great that the world is now looks very different. In verse 3, he says, For we have spent enough of our time, the past lifetime, in doing the will of the Gentiles. We walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them. Why don't you party like us? Why don't you see the world like we do? Why don't you do what we do? Why don't you focus on the values that we have? Why don't you pour your whole life into this existence and do everything you can to survive? Focus completely on survival. Listen, nobody gets out of this alive. Everybody's sitting here. We're going to die. I said it, okay? We're going to die. All of us are facing death. When I realize that Christ suffered for me, then I realize whatever I experience here, just temporary, that the stuff that I'm saying no to, is because I really believe there's something better ahead. And when I've said I'm not going to serve my, my selfish desires, interests, or those other things that people say are important, what I'm saying is, is that I have determined that because Jesus suffered for me, that he loved me, and that my home is, is at a place, not here, but a place where I am privileged, where I am blessed, his love for me changes everything. And because of that, I'm going to look totally insane to the rest of the world. And so are you. Why don't you do what we do? You're nuts. Why don't you do? Come on, it's not going to hurt anything. You're crazy. Why don't you do that? You're insane. They think it's strange. That's, that's English for nuts. So you go back on that plane. You hit the, the bump. Pilot comes on. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't want to worry you or alarm you, which means that's code language for be very alarmed. <laughs> I don't care how calm a voice. Ladies and gentlemen, we're experiencing engine trouble. We're beginning our descent. You know, we're going to make an emergency landing, whatever. And at that moment, you say, you know, my whole life has been about being ready to meet him. And this may be my moment. No, I don't want to die, and I don't want to die in a plane crash. But my hope is that I'm going to see him. And I'm going to rest my heart in that. Here's the bottom line. Hope comes from knowing Jesus. 
It's not by joining a church or being a Baptist or Methodist, Presbyterian, believing the right list of doctrines, that when trouble comes, all of that may offer some support. You may have some friends in the church that come by and pray with you and talk with you. But listen, when it's just you and that moment that's coming, that diagnosis at the doctor's office, that, that bump on the airplane, when that trouble comes, I want to know Jesus. He is my hope. And I want to be able to turn to him and say, God, you've got this. And my trust is in you. We're going to stand and sing in just a moment, and we're going to have a time of response. This in our worship service is an opportunity for you to say yes to whatever God is speaking to you. I told you at the beginning, my fear is that too many Christians do not have a biblical hope in their heart. That we don't get up each day and remind ourselves that this world is not my home. We need to. We need to set our minds on things above, Paul says in Colossians, not on things on the earth. My life is hidden with Christ in God. My life is not here. And we need to talk to ourselves, remind ourselves, arm ourselves with that mindset. Because I don't know what's going to happen this afternoon. I don't know what crisis may come to your house this week. And it may be a small thing like a broken water heater. Or it may be a big thing, a total disruption of your life. But I want you to be well armed, people of God. I want you to have hope. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he did everything to rescue you and bring you to his Father. When we stand and sing, there'll be pastors, myself, and others standing down front. We would love to share with you the good news of how you can leave here today having your sins forgiven, Jesus living inside of you, and a true hope that goes beyond the grave. You may need someone to pray with you. Maybe you're struggling with anxiety, fear. And you just want someone to pray with you. Or someone you know is hurting and struggling and they need help. We help each other with our prayers. And maybe you just want to come pray with us or grab a friend and pray down front or pray in the pew. It doesn't matter. Father, we thank you for the truth. We know about death. But Father, we need to learn so much more about the life that waits for us beyond the grave. We pray, Father, that in this moment you would, through your Holy Spirit, speak to the dear one that needs Christ today. That they would come and completely surrender their life to him. That you would save them. For others who are struggling, maybe they have not given a thought to this for weeks or months or years. And they're turning to you right now and they're saying, oh God, thank you for rescuing me. I want my hope to become real, and I want to be able to give answers to people who ask me about it. Father, as you stir hearts, as you speak to us, we pray that you would draw each of us ultimately, finally, to the heart of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.